This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. As Jamie said, I'll be in Acts 16, um, 1 through 5. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Thank you, sir. I'm going to start out a little different this morning and actually have you leave something here, leave a marker here. And by the way, you're going to want to leave something here, so I'm going to have you flip to several passages throughout the sermon today. But leave something here and go to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Now, if you've been with me for very long, uh, you know uh, that I believe strongly uh, in the local church. And I believe uh, firmly upon the word of God that the local church is the tool that God is going to use to get the gospel out to the world. The local church is the tool that God is going to use to get the gospel out to the world. And I believe the harvest is plentiful. I believe there's lots of ministry to be done. But don't just take my word for it. Let's look at Jesus's word. Here's Matthew chapter 9 and look at verse number 36. 936 says this, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is, what does it say, church? Plentiful, but, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send them out, to send out laborers into his harvest. You see what it says? The harvest is plentiful. Now, interestingly enough, when you do the research, uh, on the planet at this time, when Jesus is saying that, there's about 300 million people. Do you know how many there are today? 7.9 billion people, 7.9 billion. If the harvest was plentiful then, church, it's plentiful now. And if the church is the tool that God is going to use to reach the world with the gospel, then we need to be planting more churches. Now, to do that, we have to get over a major hurdle. And there's a big hurdle today to planting churches. The hurdle is not financial. In fact, I was talking to a pastor friend of mine who pastors a large church, and he said to me like two weeks ago, Jamie, I have money set aside ready to do this. It's certainly not opportunity. I got folks right now who would be excited if we were to like plant a church in the Albion area. They're like ready to go and be a part of that. And there's just lots of opportunity all over the state of Indiana, all over the world, lots of opportunity. The problem isn't money, the problem isn't opportunity. What we have discussed as pastors is the biggest hurdle to get across is finding church planters and finding pastors. And Jesus said it here, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So what are we to do in that case? What did Jesus say to do? Look at your Bible. Come on, the answer's right there. This is where you find the Bible, find the answers. Take a look at verse number 37. They said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, labors are few. Verse 38 says what? Therefore, 
Pray earnestly, pray earnestly that God would send workers into the field. So that's something we got to be crying out to God for. But not only that, I want to be a part of sending out church planters right from among us. So how do we do that? How are church planters developed? I believe very strongly they are discipled first. And I believe that churches have to be very intentional about discipling men and women, preparing them for the work of the ministry. And I believe that if a church is effectively discipling people, that church is going to see God raise up pastors and church planters for the next generation. And what's awesome in our text, in Matthew chapter 16, what we see is an example of a young man coming up a little revelation of his history and his background, and then him being implanted, invested into the work of the ministry. So let's go back to Acts chapter 16 uh, and look at this again. And here's what I want to contend to you today. The passion I want to have drive our uh, message today is this. Uh, Amazed at the potential of discipleship, let's invest in others. Amazed at the potential for discipleship, let's invest in others. Four steps uh, to take, four actions. Here's action number one. The action is to disciple, to disciple. We better be discipling. So what should we do? We should... Thank you, disciple. Thank you for reading that. All right, take a look at this now, verse number one. Check this out. Paul uh, came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple, uh, a what? A what was there? A A disciple was there. Thanks, Jaden. You got it, bud. Hey, I got your name right. Uh, a disciple was there named Timothy. Check this out. The son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Okay, so you get this introduction to Timothy. And the first thing the Bible says about Timothy is that he was a disciple. He was a disciple. Uh, that word simply means learner, has the idea of apprentice. So think apprentice chef or apprentice welder, apprentice plumber, someone who's learning the ways. And Timothy was one who was learning the ways of Christ, learning the ways of Jesus. And he becomes a key character for the rest of the New Testament. Paul mentions him several times all throughout the rest of the book of Acts. When you read the epistles, you see time and time again, I'm sending Timothy to you. I'm sending Timothy to you. In fact, he calls Timothy his spiritual son, which probably means on the first missionary journey, Paul led Timothy to Jesus, and now on his second, he had been discipled. And Paul notices his discipleship. Everyone has noticed. All those around have noticed. And it's encouraging to see that. And uh, later on, what we're going to see are two entire books of the Bible, our letters that Paul writes to Timothy. But where did it all begin? Where did it all start? Well, it starts right here in our text. And he was discipled. Now, here's an important question. Who discipled Timothy? Who discipled Timothy? We'll go back to your text and take a look at verse number one. Uh, Paul came to also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy. Now, look at the first person mentioned here. The son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. Interestingly enough, the text mentions Timothy's mother. Now, probably in this particular context, it's because of the fact that she was a Jew and married a Greek, which, by the way, was a big no-no. They weren't supposed to do that. But she was a Jewish woman who married a Greek. But this isn't the only place that Timothy's mother is mentioned. 
So let's turn to another passage. Let's go over to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. I hear Bible pages flipping. I hear fingers on screen scrolling. 2 Timothy chapter 1, and still in verse number 5, and this is again his second letter down to Timothy. Paul is writing to his disciple, and he says this in verse number 5. Check this out. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Isn't that cool? Keep reading. For this, for this reason, for this reason, because you were discipled by your mom and by your grandmother, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame, keep that analogy in mind, the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. It's Paul's encouraging him in the work of the ministry, but based upon the discipleship of his mom and his grandmother, really a legacy of motherhood. Now, I would love to tell you this morning that when we planned out the preaching calendar, we were smart enough to pick this text for this day. We were not. In fact, this is a little embarrassing. So I'm like all along, like thinking about Mother's Day, I've been thinking I really want to preach about Lois and Eunice. I really want to get into that text. And so uh, last week in the second service during the worship, I'm flipping, I'm looking for these passages, and I'm like, man, the guys are going to be so mad at me if I change the preaching calendar, but I really think I need to. I really want to preach on Eunice and Lois, and I want to tell a story. And then on Monday, Adam says, well, you got a, you got a softball this week. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, look at the text. It mentions his mom. I'm like, oh, of course it does, because I planned that months ago to be here right now. But isn't that, isn't that encouraging? Isn't that cool? And so I just got to take the opportunity and say to you, moms, as you are raising these kids and teaching them the Bible and investing Jesus into them, it might not seem like it's doing a whole lot right now, but God uses your motherhood to bring incredible glory to him. You may have heard this story before, but it is really, it's a really... Uh, encouraging one, I hope, to you mothers. A story of uh, Susanna Wesley. Susanna Wesley was a woman who uh, was in the, uh, just outside of London uh, growing up, and she was a, a preacher's wife. But her husband was, well, he was an interesting fellow. They did not get along. They fought about everything. In fact, they get so angry with each other that he would leave for months at a time. Now, mind you, he fathered 19 children with her, only 10 of which lived past infancy. And here's a mother who just loved her kids, but she was poor and sick most of her life. The congregation that her, father, her husband pastored hated him and hated them. They set fire to his house twice. Don't get any ideas, all right? <clears throat> they burned down his crops. Uh, one year, they slit the udders of their cows so they couldn't have any milk. And yet, here she is. And what she's known for are two things. She loved Jesus, and she loved her kids. 
Susanna Wesley would pray. And because, can you imagine a small house with 10 children? She would put her apron over her head to get a little bit of privacy. And she told her kids, if you come and see mama with her apron over her head, just leave mama alone. Because she committed for every hour she spent in entertainment, she would spend an hour in prayer. And she prayed and she prayed and she wrote many of her prayers down. And we have those prayers today. They are prayers of a woman who loved God and loved Jesus and prayed for her kids. Now, the end of that story is incredible because two of those kids were John Wesley and Charles Wesley. And through their incredible ministry, they were evangelists. Literally thousands of people came to know Jesus. They were a part of a revival that happened across England. And, 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 and I'm telling you, Mama had something to do with that. Now, if you women are like, okay, pastor, but we had cereal for supper five out of seven nights last week, so you know, I'm, I'm not exactly nailing it here. I'm telling you, um, Susanna Wesley didn't get it 100% right. You know how I know that? Because she was human and a sinner, and she messed up too. I guarantee with 10 kids, she probably kicked a few, okay? I'm just saying, it probably happened. <laughs> And as you look over the table, and as you see your kids, especially your young boys, it, it may not feel, looking at the macaroni up his nose, it may not feel like God can do much with him, but I want to encourage you, your ministry can have a massive, massive impact on their lives. All right, so... That's kind of what or who discipled him. But does the Bible give any indication of what they did? Like, what did they do? Because whatever they did, man, in Timothy's life, I want to I see our mothers doing that now. And the good news is, yes, the Bible does give indication of that. In fact, uh, flip over. You're in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Just flip a page over into 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3. And I want you to start checking out in verse uh, number... 14, 1 Timothy 3, 14. Check this out. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it. So who did he learn it from? His mama and his grandma and from Paul. And how here it is, from childhood, you have been acquainted with, come on church, the sacred writings, the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God, and prophet goes on and on. In fact, uh, the end of three into verse number four is such a powerful uh, passage on the incredible power of the, of the word of God. All the way till you get down into 4, verse number 2, chapter 4, verse number 2, where he said, preach the word. And what's awesome is that this investment of these mothers from childhood on, well, what did they do? They laid scripture down. They shared verses. They read the Bible to him. And all of that was used by God. So when Paul says, preach the word, man, he knew the word. He knew the word. So what are you going to do? How do you disciple them? Listen to me, that's very important. If you teach them right from wrong, that's good. But what you've done is you've created little moralists. 
You need to teach them the word. And as Paul said, that's make you, able to make you wise into salvation. Teach them God's word through a gospel lens. Teach them what Jesus has done for them. Lay scripture down for them. When they're little, have them memorize it, read it. Lay those verses down. But pastor, you don't understand. Like when I said he's got macaroni up his nose, I wasn't talking about a few noodles. I mean, he put spoonfuls up there. We were in the emergency room, pastor. I mean, like, that's the condition that I have with this child. Okay, I get it. And right now, it might not seem like there's much happening, but I've used this illustration before, but it's like laying, kindling down on a yet unlit fire. Because mama, when, when God ignites that heart, what you have laid down will come a flame. Fan the flame, Paul said to Timothy. That flame was given by God's word being faithfully invested over a lifetime. Awesome of God to do that. Timothy was greatly used of God because he had a mother that greatly loved him and taught him the word. So who? Yeah, mother should be doing discipleship. But look, this is a church thing too, right? I mean, the church needs to be discipling people. In fact, uh, Jesus says this in Matthew 28. I, re- I say it all the time. We'll see, look at it again here. And Jesus came and said to them, all, scripture, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, as you are going, make disciples of all nations. This is what God is telling the church to do, to make disciples. So what should we do, church? Anyone in favor of making disciples? Sit in front of saying, I... Anyone opposed? You probably need to be at a different church. So uh, we are all about discipleship. In fact, what we have here at Redemption is what we call the discipleship pathway. Here's what it looks like. Right now, you are doing a little bit of Discipleship 101. Discipleship 101 is just simple. Come to church, get into a small group, find a place to work. Worship, walk, work. Everyone says with me. Worship, walk, work. That's Discipleship 101. You're coming to worship. You're uh, walking with Jesus in a small group with other people. You are working here in uh, somewhere in, in that. So that is that. Uh, Discipleship 201 is we have these booklets that we've written that cover kind of the foundational things of Christianity. We do that so that when we start seeing our church get fired up and reaching many people for Jesus Christ, we have a pathway, an avenue to get them grounded in the Word of God and the key things they need to know. Those discipleship booklets are for that, and they are available at redemptionfw.org slash resources. Click on discipleship resources. You'll see the booklets there in PDF form. In addition to that, then, 301 is our classes, really Redemption University, how to study the Bible. One of the things we're planning for and praying for is in the fall, we have some cool things that we're talking about doing for Redemption University. I'm super excited, obviously, about some of those classes, but we want to offer uh, more at one time. So you have maybe a choice of a couple of classes that you can attend, and we want to begin to disciple that way as well. And then if you've been through that and you're like, I really need to take that next step, that next level, then we'll sit down with you as a pastor and we'll plan that out for you specifically and help you to grow in your walk. 101, 201, 301, 401, a very intentional plan for discipleship. But if we're going to be disciple makers, we need to disciple. Number two, write this down. We need to affirm. We need to affirm. Let's go back to Acts chapter 16, please. Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, we see this in verse number two. 
Speaking about Timothy, Luke writes, he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Okay, so he was well spoken of. That's really interesting. Um, the brothers, it says, around Timothy, both in his hometown and the neighboring town next over, both of those were like, they saw something in Timothy. They affirmed him. They, he was well spoken of. In fact, uh, this is interesting. This is kind of a pattern in Acts where you have people who are serving faithfully in a local assembly, and then they are kind of appointed for the work of the ministry. In fact, go back to Acts 13, if you would, Acts 13. Just flip a few pages back. And here in Acts 13, we see this in verse number one. Now there was in the church, in the what? I'll try it again. Now there were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping in, in uh, the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said to the church now, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So they were serving where first? In the church, in the local church. And as they were serving in the church, then the church recognized their gifts by the Holy Spirit and sent them off. This is also a pattern you see in other places. So another place to turn, let's go to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Now, when I was uh, growing up, um, I remember this. I don't think I was saved yet. And I started attending Awana at the local Baptist church in Clarkston, Washington. And uh, I remember having to memorize uh, Hebrews, uh, sorry, Romans 12, 1 and 2. And uh, that was back when uh, everybody used the King James. So I got a little bit of King James, a little bit of ESV, a little bit of New King James, and a little bit of the translation according to Jamie, all kind of mixed in there now. But, you know, I beseech ye, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, be transformed the renewing of your mind, be proved as a good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Now, I've had the memorized since again before I was saved, and yet God still has that in my mind, because that's how awesome our God is. But here's verse number three. We're kind of familiar with that. Basically, it just says, be sold out for Jesus. Give your life as a living sacrifice to Jesus. Verse number three now. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, according, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members are all the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Can you read these next three words with me, please? Or four words? Let us use them. And it goes on to say, a prophecy in proportion to our faith. If service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in genero generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So you get the idea? Lottie Dottie Everybody. has been given a gift. Say, I've been given a gift. Say it. I've been given a gift. That gift is to be used within the local church body. So what do you do with that, that gift? Well, you read those four words with me. Let's say them again. Let us use them. Use those gifts. Here's what's going to happen. 
as you begin to use those gifts here in our church, begin to serve faithfully here in our church, God is going to raise up from among us those who we will recognize as especially gifted in teaching, and especially gifted in leading, especially gifted in all these areas. And we'll be able to lay hands on them and to send them out to the work of the ministry. So do we have a plan then for discipling leaders? Is there a plan at redemption for getting leaders ready then? The answer is yes. This is a leadership pipeline, and we've been doing this now for several years. There are six steps to the leadership pipeline. Number one is we evaluate and assess. Number two, we have some initial training. We've written a couple booklets. There are some things to read to kind of prepare you for leadership. Then what we do in number three is we determine where should this person go? Where should they? Maybe it's a small group leader. Maybe it's a biblical counselor. Maybe it's an elder. Maybe it's a deacon. Maybe it's a pastor. And for all of those things I just mentioned, we have a pipeline, a plan for training, books to read, classes to take online, uh, a task to accomplish. For example, let's just talk about the elder pipeline for a, moment, for a minute. Right now, we got several men in our church who are currently on the elder pipeline. If you're going to be an elder at Redemption, there are four or five books you have to read. In addition to that, one of them, by the way, is about that thick. It's called Systematic Theology. And by the end of it, you have to be able to write a paper on what you believe about the ten doctrines, bibliology, anthropology, pneumatology, hemartiology, to be able to know your doctrine. It takes a long time to get through that. Lots of hours that I'm spending investing into men who might be elders here. But, but we're very intentional about training up that next generation of church leader. And we've had the opportunity to send some out, like we just did with Kevin and Misty, elders who were sending out to plant more churches, things we're very intentional about. So then we'll implement, and we'll come back, and we'll evaluate, is this the right place for you as we go along? But this is a, something the local church does. It affirms. So four actions. We're going to disciple. We're going to affirm. Number three, we're going to center. Now, this is where the text gets really interesting. So let's go back to Acts 16. You've got to see what is really kind of odd in the text. Check this out in verse number three. And Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him. Everyone go, what? I'll read it again. You can say that there. Okay, right here we go. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him. Because, thank you for your interest. Because of the Jews who were in those places where they all knew that his father was Greek. Now, hold on a second. Verse number four gets even weirder. And as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. Do you remember all that? This is what we've been preaching so far about how there's this big question about whether or not the people should be circumcised. And what did they decide? No, you don't need to circumcise them. They don't, you don't got to do that. So now here they are, and they're delivering the very letter that says, you don't need to be circumcised, but what does he do with Timothy? Circumcises them. Well, that's weird. Why did he do that? Listen, it gets even more odd. I want you to turn last passage, go to, well, last passage we'll turn to, go to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. This is, this is incredible when you see this in context here. Here is now Galatians chapter 2, and this is the story of Paul and Titus. 
And Paul and Barnabas are taking Titus. This has probably happened before all this, but they took Titus up to see the Jerusalem council, and Titus was a Greek. And look what happens in verse number four of this text. Yet because of the false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel may be preserved to you. I can't think I missed something. Oh, verse number three is where I wanted to start. Verse number three. But even Titus who was with me was not forced to be circumcised. Do you see that? Titus doesn't get circumcised, and they're not going to submit to the pressure to circumcise them. But Timothy, they did. Paul, what's going on? That seems a little bit inconsistent. Why would you circumcise one and not circumcise the other? I contend to you, there was one principle that drove both decisions. One principle that made Paul do what he did and both decisions were the right decision to make. To refuse to circumcise the one and to insist on the other. What was that principle? Well, look at Galatians 2, 5. It tells us. So we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Here it is. Underline this in your Bible. You have a pen with you? Underline this. So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Timothy and Titus are two different people, listen now, ministering in two different contexts. Timothy was, a, well, let's start with Titus. Titus was a Greek, 100% Greek, and he was going to minister to Greeks. He becomes the pastor on the Isle of um, Crete later. And so this is going to be his ministry that he's going to go into. Now, for him to be circumcised, among other Gentiles, among other Greeks, they would say, well, he was circumcised? Well, I thought we didn't have to be circumcised to be saved. So, so now what's that all about? And that would confuse the gospel. But Timothy had a Jewish mom and a Greek dad. Now, there was a choice between those. Now, again, you weren't supposed to do that. So Timothy's mom kind of went outside the expected norm of Jews, but she did it anyway. But there were laws written in to say that if a Jewish woman has a child, she decides whether or not the child would be raised as a Jew loving the God of Israel or as a Greek choosing the gods of her father. And the indication that he chose Jesus, or the God of Israel, was a circumcision. So for him not to be circumcised, the Jews would say, hey, what are you doing? Are you choosing the Greek gods over our God? And apparently they were going to ask, because how else would they know? Think about it for a second. All right. So to preserve the impact of the gospel to the context in which they were going, that was a driving force. In fact, here's the question. What is best for the spreading of the gospel? That's the question. What is best for the spreading of the gospel? Interestingly enough, Adam just preached on this recently, and he preached on this, and he showed you, remember how Adam went through um, 
1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, and we really walk through, spend some time. You read a lot of scripture that day, kind of going through this principle. So I'm not going to rehash all that ground, but it's interesting that Paul lands in the same place. The question was, do we eat the meat offered to idols? And some would say yes, and some would say no. And Paul would say, well, it all depends. What is best for the spreading of the gospel? In fact, he says this in 1 Corinthians 10, 33 through 11, 1. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not to be liked, okay, not seeking my own advantage, that's my temptation, but that of many, here it is, that they may be saved. And then he challenges them, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Okay. Do you guys follow me on that? We've got a little Bible study, but that's what we're here to do. Can I get a witness? Yes, and listen to me now. Um, we talk a lot about being gospel-centered at our church. And yes, that means you preach the gospel to yourself every day. You should. You should remind yourself of the gospel truths. Yes, it means that the gospel is your motivation for living the Christian life. I love my wife as Christ loved the church because he loved me. I want to do what I do because I am love. We live life love that comes from being gospel-centered. But I want you to think about this. Not only is gospel-centered the motivation for our life, it is the mission we've all been called to. And you're going to leave today, and you're going to go to work tomorrow, probably. How many of y'all going to work tomorrow? You're going to go to work tomorrow, and you're going to do something. You're going to be a baker, or you're going to be a nurse, or you're going to be a salesman, or you're going to be a whatever. And because that takes up so much of your time and focus, you begin to think that that's what you're here to do. It's not. What you're here to do is to spread the gospel, to preach the gospel to every creature. Paul says in Ephesians 3 that the manifest wisdom of God may be made known. We are here to tell other people about Jesus. So before you're anything, you're a gospel spreader. And that means that all throughout the day, baby, you're going to be making decisions. Does this thing I'm doing further spread the gospel or does it hinder the gospel? Does this action I'm taking, does it help spread the gospel or maybe does it hinder the gospel? This thing I'm about to eat, this thing I'm about to drink, surrounded by these people, what does it do for the gospel? And there should be shows you don't talk about. There should is you watch them on your own, but man, you get out there in the world, you're gonna shut doors. There may be foods you refuse, there may be things you won't wear in order to spread the gospel. It all depends on the context you're in. But you have to have that as a mentality of living. How do I get the gospel forward? How do I get the gospel forward? You're not doing these things to be liked, not for my own advantage, but that many may be saved. So come on now, get honest with me. When you think about being gospel-centered, when you think about centering your life on mission, how are you doing with that? How often does the opportunity to share Jesus take up mental space for you? How often are you thinking about that and pressing into it? What we want to do in our church is disciple one another to love the gospel, to live in the gospel, to invest in the gospel, to do all these things so that this is the way we think we are truly centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what this evidence is for me. Paul was teaching Timothy it's all about spreading the gospel. 
So let's do what needs to be done for you to spread the gospel more effectively. Last action, if we can do it. So here we go. We've got four actions that we're going to take to disciple effectively. One is to disciple. Two, to affirm in the church. Three, get them centered on the gospel. And then number four, we're going to invest them. We're going to invest them. And I want you to look at verse number four. This is really interesting. It's an easy phrase to kind of pass over, but really packed with a lot of meaning. Uh, Verse number four, as they went on their way through the city. So guess what? Timothy leaves. He leaves his mom. He leaves his grandma. He leaves the church that he grew up in and was discipled in. He leaves all of that to further the work of the gospel. Those churches had to make an investment of these workers into the furthering of the gospel. And what does God do with that? Verse number five, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. They were strengthened in the faith and they were increased in numbers daily. So we as a church just did this. Grant and I uh, raised Courtney. And again, I would like to sit here and say, um, Grant and I raised Courtney. A little bit. A little bit. Courtney and I raised Grant. Uh, Scott, we're going to put the second service online this week. Not the first, okay? Second service online. Uh, Courtney and I raised Grant. (laughs) And um, I mean, I can try to take credit here. And and I did spend time with Grant, but man, his mama, uh, he was homeschooled since he, all along the way. And she invested in him, gave her life to investing in this child. Taught him the Bible, taught him to love Jesus taught him about math and about, well, tried, and about science and just all, I mean, everything, history. She was the primary teacher in his life. And uh, yesterday we had the privilege of watching him, you know, walk up on stage and get his uh, Bachelor's of Arts in Worship Studies, graduating magna cum laude. And uh, I know it's a little bit of bragging, but come on, okay, I'm a little proud of the kid. But as much as we just invested Grant into Light City Bible Church in Wabash as we planted that church, it was an investment for you as well. Grant was a teacher with her children's ministry. Grant was a worship leader here. He put hours into that. And it was Grant, but it was also Kevin and Misty Trotter. We invested them into the work of the ministry. Kevin, it was an elder. I can't tell you how much he helped progress our elders into a loving care with one another and the elders just championing, caring for us as pastors. I mean, they did such a, he did so much work in that regard and it was hard to, to let Kevin and Misty and then Misty's parents, uh, they also, we were here attending our church and all of them, we three families really, we invested back into the work of the ministry. And plus Kevin's kids. I mean, come on, if you've seen Kevin's kids, you know, they're some of the most adorable kids on the planet. And we, we let them go and go back now to plant this church in, and this is what we are to do. This is what we are to do. And um, I'm telling you, I don't want to just do this one time. I want to do this again and again. I just don't, I don't know. I don't know that God's gifted me to be a pastor that pastors a large, large thing. I, I really um, love being with people. And I love 
being in and amongst the sheep. And I'm telling you, I, I don't know what God will do with that, but here's, here's what I want to do. I want to I grow, and I want to then send people out, and I want to grow some more and then send people out and then raise them up, raise up church planters, raise up people, and then send them out and see God, just more churches all around our city, all around our state, all around the world uh, eager to preach the gospel, help them to have the same passion we do about the exegetical, applicational preaching of the word, the passionate worship, intentional discipleship, effective prayer. You get the idea, strategic outreach, the things that we're passionate about, and to plant more and more churches that are that way and to see exactly what God would do with that and be blown away uh, by God's work there. In fact, you can pray for us this uh, summer. We have a pastoral intern. Uh, Darren and Sarah's son, Ethan, is going to hang out with us for the summer, and I get him like full time. We're gonna, he's, he wants to be a pastor, and so we're going to pour into him and be praying what God would do with that. But this is what we do, church. We disciple. We affirm. We center and then we invest. I love you moms that have had a part in that, but we all need to have a part in that to see what God will do. Let's take a moment and let's pray for God's blessing on that. So God, we thank you for your grace, for your love, for this privilege we have as a church. And God, I don't know. I, I, I know your plans are often different than ours, better than ours, but I do believe this is a pattern we see in your word. Churches being planted by churches and the harvest is plentiful. And we need more workers in the field. God, would you send them out from among us? Would you help us to be effective at preparing them? And then do an incredible just work of glory for your name through that investment. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church. You are loved.